And here we are, our second uh, remote Skype session podcast. Mm. Tim, how's it going over there? Actually, um, well, look, things are about the same as they were the last time we spoke uh, <laughs> with our, I think we're calling it physical distancing now, as opposed to social distancing. Oh. Uh, um, you know, the numbers are the numbers, and, uh, and I feel about it the way I felt about it then. It'll be okay. Well, I, 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 we're so, so we're calling it physical distancing now? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I, I, I was gonna nickname it Sodis. I was just gonna do a like a like hashtag Sodis. How's your Sodis going? They're switching it up on me, man. That sucks. So you know, uh, there's really nothing to talk about. Movies are getting canceled. Sony just pushed their entire summer slate off to next year. Yeah, that's kind of insane. I don't. Yeah, I, I, interesting. I, they did that though, rather than get selective about it. Yeah, and 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 uh, and say, look, some of these things we're gonna we're gonna push over to uh, you know one of the various uh, streaming services because some you know other, other folks are doing that, and um and, but no, they just did, took the whole thing and moved it over one year. It's crazy. Uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I it, it, you know the Olympics have been pushed off, so Sony has to feel like they're gonna be able to compete with the Olympics. I guess I don't know how that's all gonna work because they had stuff scheduled for next year as well. It, I, I don't. What this magical one year thing is uh, either no one's been able. I mean, I get it. You know, we, this, this will all go away eventually. I don't know why a year. Well, uh, I, I think because magically number. I think because they feel like the the timetable for a um, a vaccine will be there. I mean, so, you know, if you talk to professionals, they all kind of have different uh, opinions about it. But the the people who are who are saying they're saying, look, we could have a vaccine as early as December or November. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more realistically, we would have a vaccine by like next uh, February. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah interesting. interesting. Look, look, I, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to play historian. Yeah. Uh, except technically, I can play historian because I have to do <laughs> history. Uh, um, but we, we will remember that that uh, that uh, that nineteen seventeen uh, flu, uh, yep. bad, 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 went away. Yep. Uh, uh, came back in the fall. Uh, made a made a mess in the fall. Uh, of 1917. So, you know, these things have a way of, uh, of doing that. Um, hopefully we'll just, you know, um, be vigilant and, uh, and take care of it and make it go away forever, eventually. Well, we're going to start off. We're going to dive right in. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of Kino titles here from their Studio Classics line. Um, you know what? This stuff is not on streaming. This stuff is not anywhere. This stuff is only on Blu-ray. And yeah. uh, you got if you want to watch any of these spectacular movies, then you just got to dive in and, and order them. Uh, and, and Kino just has some of the best stuff these days. Uh, right off the bat, that we've been talking about alert, a lot of Ernst Lubitsch stuff, and Kino has Bluebeard's Eighth Wife out now with Claudette Colbert and Gary Cooper. Um, from 1938, really one of the most enjoyable Ernst Lubitsch movies imaginable, and for a very good reason, because it was written by Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder. Uh. Ernst Lubitsch and Billy Wilder, it just doesn't get better. And one of the things that I've been doing lately at watching Criterion Channel, been uh, watching a lot of um, a lot of Billy Wilder interview footage uh, with Dick Cavett in particular, and then also reading some Billy Wilder interviews online. And and he he always had a sign in his office that said, "What would Lubitsch do?" That was <laughs> that was how Billy that was how he he sort of inspired himself because Lubitsch. It's funny he said, he said he says that when for some reason Lubitsch always got his great ideas on the can. That he and Brackett would be sitting around and brainstorming with Lubitsch, and Lubitsch would said, "Give me a second. And he'd he'd go to the head, and and he'd, <laughs> and he'd and he'd sit on the toilet for like ten minutes, and then he'd come back and he'd say, "I've got it." 
And suddenly he'd lecture them. He'd give them like a 15 minute long, like he'd come up with these amazing ideas just sitting on the toilet. It's the funniest, (laughs) funniest thing in the world. So anyway, Bluebeard's Eighth Wife really is uh, a a terrific film, has wonderful supporting performances too by Edward Everett Horton and David Niven of all people. But uh, the combination of Billy Wilder, Charles Bracken and Ernst Lubitsch is just incomparable. And then you, you throw Gary Cooper and Claudette Colbert into the mix. You, you know, you have one of the all-time great romantic comedies ever, ever made. And, of course, the uh, the concept here is um, uh, a very risque at the time, uh, set in France over the idea of um, uh, a, 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 a man who has been married many times. And mm-hmm. uh, she, Claudette Colbert, is likely to be his eighth and... Uh, you know, it's uh, in 1938, that was a bit of a thing. So anyway, the very, very fun movie. Also worth mentioning is a movie that was really maligned at the time, Force 10 from Navarone, uh, kind of a semi-sequel to The Guns of Navarone based mm-hmm. on uh, the Alistair McLean novel. Uh, and uh, directed by Guy Hamilton, of course, the legendary James Bond director, with a terrific cast, Harrison Ford, very, very young here, uh, just kind of uh, just just off of Star Wars, Trying to sort of do something a little, uh, a little novel, and uh, Robert Shaw, and I remember seeing this several times, not because I wanted to see Force Ten from Navarone, but because I really wanted to see Jaguar Lives with Joe Lewis. Yeah, the 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 Joe Lewis uh, who who is is mocked by uh, Bruce Lee in, or in uh, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if you remember that line, where where uh, Ter- Quentin has Bruce talking about all of his inspirations, and he says Joe Lewis. The boxer, not that 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 white kickboxer, you know, <laughs> and, and he makes fun of him. And it's funny because I always forget that that Joe Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, was, yes. a, contem- was a contemporary of Bruce Lee. But uh, he started his film career later and made uh, a, mov- a couple of movies. One of them was Jaguar Lives, which was uh, I thought was a terrific film. And it was a double feature, and I wanted to get my money's worth every time I saw Jaguar Lives, so I had to sit through Force 10 from Navarone first. Uh, you know what I got Force 10 from huh. Navarone? Uh, Carl Weathers is in that movie. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, man, it's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, young Carl, young young Carl, young Harrison. Yeah, whole yeah. whole whole bunch of cats. Yeah, Franco Franco Nero, Barbara yeah. Bach, Edward Fox was in yeah. it as well. Yeah. yeah, and and it's funny now looking back, I had no idea Sam Arkoff produced this damn thing. Yeah, isn't yeah. that crazy? Yeah, yeah, kind of a terrible movie though. So. <laughs> it really is. But you know what? You know what? We 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 have fun with it anyway. Yes, it's uh, it, it's it's amazing uh, under current special effects standards. When you look at the the dam break at the end, you it, like I knew that that was a miniature at the time, and that I was watching slow motion of a dam that was probably about sixteen inches t- high. But you look at it now, it's laughable. Yeah. It's really it's really yeah. laughable. CG would be so much better. Uh, the the uh, the great French director René Clair had a had a Hollywood career for for a moment and made some really interesting stuff. And one of those films was uh, The Flame of New Orleans, starring Marlena Dietrich. Uh, Flame of New Orleans was made in 1941 and uh, is really a pretty great Marlena Dietrich uh, vehicle. It's it you know Dietrich's German career and her Hollywood career are are really a subject of a lot of debate, but. Um, it's very interesting. This uh, takes place in the, in the in the 18th century. This is pre-Louisiana Purchase, so this is French-era New Orleans. And uh, she plays a countess who uh, wants to, you know, marry a rich guy when she arrives in New Orleans. And it's a really, really smart film. It's well-written by Norman Krasna, terrific uh, screenwriter from the day. 
And it has an audio commentary by uh, Lee Gambin and Rutanya Alda. So uh, it's good stuff on that. We have also got Indiscretion of an American Wife, a Vittorio De Sica film with Jennifer oh, Jones yeah. and Montgomery Clift. I had forgotten, I mean, you're a big De Sica guy. I'd forgotten yeah. that De Sica actually had a, a moment in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Uh, uh, yeah, the 1958 film, if I'm not mistaken. 53. 53. And, and uh, with dialogue by Truman Capote. Yeah, like yeah, that's yeah. just I had I, I had no idea. It's like these things come in, and I'm like, holy cow! Are you kidding me? Ginger, I didn't, didn't Ginger know that. Jones and, yeah. and, and Mon- Mon- Montgomery Clift before the accident. Yes, when uh, his when his face was so beautiful. Yeah, he's yeah. Just, it's insane. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's I mean, and it and it is not among De Sica's best, but it's interesting. <laughs> he steps into the Hollywood style very very nicely, and uh, it's a it's a wonderful romance. It's a it's a it's a really really solid film, and for Deseka fans, it's a really interesting contrast to things like Bicycle Thieves. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know that that neorealism of all of that. Not here. This is a film. No, uh, that's it. Is made, made in the Hollywood style. Yes. In the Hollywood style. Yeah. Uh, Ruben Mamoulian, the man who directed the first ever uh, Technicolor film with Becky Sharp, the first ever three strip Technicolor, uh, most accurately, uh, directed a movie also with Marlena Dietrich called The Song of Songs, and that was in nineteen. 19- 33 it is a pre-code film and uh it is uh it, it, it it's a little bit sentimental for my taste it really really kind of uh, goes very very deep into into the melodrama um it, it's a little bit dated but as an artifact of history i found it really really quite interesting uh you know the uh dietrich i mean it's 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 a it's basically a period tearjerker is what it is and um you know has all of the usual tragic twists and turns in it but it's got a very very uh, inter- uh compelling cast uh in addition to Marlena Dietrich it's it's got um Lionel Atwell and uh Allison Skipworth Brian Ahern is is the big co-star so uh that's that's worth checking out if you're a, a Dietrich fan uh Mickey Spillane's My Gun is Quick Ah. Star, it's so good. Stars Robert Bray as Mike Hammer, one of the the dozen or so people who played Mike Hammer. Um, we're all we're we're accustomed to uh, the Mike Hammer TV incarnation, but uh, these earlier films, the '50s era stuff that is like actually set in the era when these stories were originally written, um, pretty great stuff. And I, I'm not overly familiar with Robert Bray as an actor. He was kind of a B level guy, but man. Um, and this, and director as well, George White. These are not people that were yeah. ever on my A list, but made in 1957. Really good, hard boiled noir, made for a, a, a kind of a, a, a buck fifty, and uh, a lot of great supporting performances here too from people that I'm only barely aware of: Don Randolph, Fred Esler. Um, it's a good, solid movie. Yeah, uh, look, that movie was wickedly dark. It prostitutes and oh yeah, <laughs> I mean it's just the darkest stuff you could possibly think of think of in these movies, and they were wicked cool. Uh, and I, you gotta love that title. My gun is quick. <laughs> it's it's too cool. Uh, Return from the Ashes, directed by um, uh, J. Lee Thompson, who uh, uh, did a lot of the a lot of good solid kind of semi noirs at the time. This is from '65. It's a little bit late for noir, um, but it, and this is kind of a dramatic noir in some respects. Anyway, written by Julius Epstein, Casablanca co-writer, um, and it takes place in Paris just before World War II, uh, where there's this uh, Jewish doctor played by Ingrid Thulin. Uh, who marries a, a a chess master played by Maximilian Schell, and uh, what happens thereafter is all World War II related. I won't I won't give any of it away, but 
Um, it, it it creates all kinds of really, really interesting, uh, very noirish, Hitchcockian twists and turns that are are very, very impressive. Herbert Lom is in this, so Samantha Egger, the wonderful Samantha Egger. But um, really, ultimately, it's a it's a great um, it's a great bit for Maximilian Schell and for Ingrid Thulin, who Ingrid Thulin, I, I dug that movie, dude. You, you know, cool. Jay Lee, speaking of Guns of Navarone, yeah. That's Jay Lee, yeah, uh, and a bunch of in a bunch of those uh, Planet of the Apes movies. I don't oh. remember which ones, but two or three of those Planet of the Apes movies, Jay Lee knocked out. He did. He, he was a he was a, he was a craftsman. He knocked them out, you know, and just workmanlike, right? Yeah, man. John Saxon, we love John Saxon because he's we in. Still love John. Oh Saxon. man, John Saxon was in every cheesy thing ever made, and somehow he just owned it. I mean, you you put John Saxon in the worst piece of junk ever, and somehow he makes you believe. I don't know how he does it. I just don't know how he does it. But anyway, John Saxon, one of the best things, apart from Bruce Lee uh, in uh, Enter the Dragon, um, starred in Cannibal Apocalypse. I don't even need to tell you what this movie's about. This yeah. is one of the great titles of all time. This is one of those Italian schlocky films from uh, 1980. Um, kind of, sort of a semi-giallo uh, film. You know, it, it's it's gory. It's cheap. It's bad. But you know what? Right about now, with this coronavirus thing... It's kind of prescient. It's kind of prescient. Uh, we got a double feature here of The Captain's Paradise by Anthony Kimmons and uh, Barnacle Bill, with, uh, by, directed by Charles Friend. These are both Alec Guinness movies. They are Alec Guinness being silly and funny, which he did constantly in his British films before he became super, super serious in Hollywood movies. Um What's interesting is Barnacle Bill was made the same year as Bridge in the River Kwai, oh. and uh, it's a very, very different character. Um, and uh, it's, you know, he plays a, um, he, he, I mean, Man in the White Suit is sort of where he started his comedic career, and this sort yeah. of is a little bit similar to that. This is about a guy who is, uh, he's trying to be a, a seaman in his family's tradition. The problem is, a, na- a good naval man, a big naval officer, the problem is, he gets seasick. Comedy writes itself. <laughs> Comedy writes itself. Uh, and then the Captain's Paradise is uh, is kind of a, um, a, a it's almost like a Bob Hope movie to be honest. It's uh, it, it takes place in Gibraltar, and uh, he plays a guy. Oh, I don't want to give anything away. Let's just let's just say he's a let's just say he's a, he's a, it's it's almost like a Bob Hope movie crossed with a with a, a Don Knotts movie. Star, starring <laughs> starring uh, uh, Alec Guinness. And let me tell you, Celia Johnson and Yvonne DiCarlo as the co-leads are both terrific. And that is so unusual. Celia Johnson is such a serious British actress. And Yvonne DiCarlo, we all identify as Lily Munster. But they're both terrific. Also, uh, Agatha Christie's Endless Night oh. uh, uh, with great and unbelievable score by Bernard Herrmann. Really, a, just a fantastic score. This was uh, uh, directed and written by Sidney Gilliatt in 1972. Uh, it's not one of the better-known Agatha Christie's, but it's fine. It's perfectly adequate. Uh, but it really, what makes it is Bernard Herrmann's music. Haley Mills is, uh, a, is the star, a, uh, yeah. an older Haley Mills. She's not a little girl anymore. She's kind of trying to go big. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's spooky, but it feels like a movie from 1972. A perfect Brit Eklund is in that movie, if I recall. Oh, that. yes, she is. Uh, also, Giuseppe Tornatore's A Pure Formality. I'm so thrilled that this is on Blu-ray. This went nowhere. Tornatore made this right after he made uh, Cinema Paradiso. 
and um, it, it went nowhere. It just kind of died. And basically, it's a two-hander. It's uh, yeah. it's Gerard Depardieu and Roman Polanski in a room. It's basically a cop interrogating a guy. That's pretty yeah. much the entire movie. And um, But it's amazing because both actors are just at their absolute peak. Uh, Polanski, as an actor, not a filmmaker, really has a whole different dimension to him. He's very impressive here. Reviewed that movie back in 74, gave it a good review. I think I think that's probably writing for box. I think we're yeah. both probably writing for box yeah. office back then. And yeah, it was very a very odd uh, sort of uh, turn for him, Giuseppe. Uh, and, you know, after Cinema Paradiso and just boom, nothing. Nothing. And, and I think because it is all in one room and it's two actors, it, a lot of people sort of revolted against it. But it's so good and has it's such a great twist at the end. It's just really a it's a smart film. Uh, Orson Welles and Jeff Chandler in Man in the Shadow from 1957. Kind of a standard 50s era Western. Uh, Jack Arnold, real kind of a, a journeyman director. This is a cool audio commentary from Troy Howarth, who contextualizes the film and, and puts it in its uh, its proper place. But man, what a what a you know what a good artifact from the period. Orson Welles is you know it's it's not. I mean, it's not great. It's a little bit like a like a Western era noir, and uh, Orson Welles is you know. Plays a he's heavy, literally physically heavy, and he plays a heavy, and uh, it's all good. Um, written by the way by Gene L. Coon, one of the legendary mm. writers of Star Trek. Yeah, 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 yeah. Orson seems like he was working out some stuff that would pop up in uh, Touch of Evil a couple of few yeah. years later when yeah. he actually could direct and and more or less kind of play the same guy in a certain sort of way. We got uh, got some more westerns here. Um, I'll make uh, quick work of these. The Rare Breed. Night Passage and Canyon Passage are these three. Um, James Stewart stars in uh, The Rare Breed and Night Passage, and then uh, Night Passage and Canyon Passage have absolutely nothing in common other than the title Passage. Uh, <laughs> that's really all they've got. But uh, my favorite of these is The Rare Breed. It's uh, you know you just can't go wrong with James Stewart and Maureen O'Hara, and then Brian Keith of all people does the you know brings up the rear. But Maureen O'Hara and James Stewart, that's just a lot of star power there. Directed by Andrew McLaughlin, who did tons of westerns in this period, yeah. and it's just beautiful. It's nice, wonderful, widescreen, full color, Technicolor, epic uh, western filmmaking from 1966. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of a, it's a, it's about selling a bull at an auction and, uh, the, uh, it, it all, it, what, livestock, it's a livestock yeah. Western there. The livestock Westerns always center around cattle runs and, and rodeos. And, you know, if the animal, the animals play as big of a part as any, uh, any person, but bunch of familiar faces in that you got your Jack Elam, you got your Harry Carey Jr. You got yeah. your, yeah, well, even young Juliet Mills, young Juliet Mills again. Beautiful. Yep. Um, and then uh, Night Passage is James Stewart and Audie Murphy. Audie Murphy never really could act, but because he was a war hero, people just kept putting him in movies. And he's not even very good playing himself in the Audie Murphy story, to be honest. But uh, it's fine. Dan, James Stewart kind of puts him on his back and carries him. Dan Duryea, uh, who's always the second or third guy in all these westerns, shows up just to remind you that it's a western. And, uh, you know, directed by James Nielsen. Not a real impressive guy, but it has a great Dmitry Tiomkin score that kind of give, makes your feel it's super big and west. And uh, historian Toby Roan of the Roan Group does the audio commentary and uh, gives this a nice little uh, sense of context as well. So it's good. It's got, you know, it's got gunslingers and train bandits and the whole thing. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a Western. It's just yeah, a straight dude, here comes Jack Elam again. <laughs> I know. You all, these guys, I mean, they it was, a, it was a bit of a... 
cottage industry, some Jack, of these guys. You know, Jack, they didn't even change their clothes. Jack Elam and Dan Duryea, I swear they're in like every single one of these movies. Those guys made hundreds of westerns, and they're always playing the same same part. You're yeah, right. Tell you, every time, every time. You, you, you wear, wear your hat to bed and wake up the next day and wear it onto another movie. Uh, Jacques Tourneur, another uh, great European director who came here and made some things. And uh, he made Canyon Passage with Dana Andrews, Brian Donnelly, and Susan Hayward. Uh, and Turner, of course, also very much a dark kind of a noir director and uh, brings that sensibility to this 1946 film, which is um, it's sort of subversive in a way. It's got all the usual stuff, you know, the, the prospecting and gunslingers and... Uh, you know, the and, and prostitutes and uh, all that stuff all takes place in Oregon in the 1850s. And um, uh, and, and I'll tell you, the thing that really makes this is Lloyd Bridges. Lloyd Bridges plays. Yeah, I was going to say, yes. Lloyd Lloyd just kills it, absolutely kills it. Hoagie Carmichael is in yeah. this, of all of all people as well. Um, but Lloyd Bridges, really, he just kind of walks away with the film, plays a gunslinger, and he's just so good. Uh, yeah. they, Really good. Ward Bond, Susan Hayward killing it. You know who you don't buy in this movie? Huh. Dana Andrews. That's that's, that's really true. <laughs> it's absolutely true. It's straight up true. Uh, the last three here. Uh, one. Uh, I'm going to mention Superdome first. These are all. These last three are weird. Actually, I'm going to start with the double feature. So Sweeney, and then its follow up Sweeney Two. Uh, is a an incredibly overlooked 1978 and 1977-78 uh, pair of films. Um, and everybody's kind of forgotten that these these exist. They were directed by different guys. David Wicks uh, did the first one. Tom Clegg did the second one. And um, they're basically British cop films. They're kind of like uh, in the vein of everything else that was being done in the 70s, you know, Serpico, The Seven Ups, uh, French Connection, except on the British end of things. They're not quite like the British crime films from the late 60s. They're not like, um, you, you know, the Michael Caine stuff. No, they, no get Carter, not get no, Carter. No, it's not, get, not exactly get Carter. It's, it's, uh, this is, this is almost leading into the British crime television of the 80s. And uh, both of these films are actually quite good, very interesting, and um, worth checking out. Uh, if you've never seen them, uh, you, should, you should see The Sweeney and The Sweeney 2 on Blu-ray from Kino. Now we get weird. Su Superdome. Tim, do you remember Superdome from 1978? Oh, hell yeah. What? <laughs> Absolutely I had, Superdome. I so forgot this David Jansen. Yeah. Was, David Jansen was still alive. Yeah. David Jansen, uh, directed by Jerry Jameson, and uh, starring David Jansen, and an unbelievable cast. Van Johnson, Ken Howard, uh, Edie Adams, Donna Mills, and you know who, Jane Wyatt, you know who also is in this, and I had completely forgotten? Tom Tom freaking Selleck is in this. Oh, he is? Tom Selleck is in this. He absolutely yeah. is. Remember Clifton Davis? Remember Clifton Davis? Yeah. Uh, is in this. But yes, Tom Selleck is in this just before uh, Magnum P.I. Yeah. It's abs It's just crazy. Susan Howard before uh, before Dallas. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. And, and you know, this is kind of a – I mean, it's a Super Bowl – thing uh and it's uh you know everything takes place in new orleans and it's it's a it's it's kind of like towering inferno in the super bowl uh yeah. without a fire i don't know yeah. how else to explain it <laughs> yeah right exactly yeah it's just it's just it's just a lot of drama a lot of soap opera stuff but uh man what a weird movie that was and here's the weirdest movie of all i never even knew this movie existed have you ever heard of prey for the wildcats i this no yeah. Dude, dude, 
What a bizarre movie this is. 1974, totally off my radar. You're not going to believe this. And this has a really, really good uh, commentary, by the way, with film historian Amanda Reyes and uh, podcaster Bill Ackerman. They explain everything. Whatever weird questions you have, they are all answered in the commentary. I'm just going to tell you right now, this is about Andy Griffith is a guy, a rich businessman, who challenges three ad executives to a motorcycle road trip to Baja. And those executives are play this is Andy Griffith challenges <laughs> three ad execs. And the ad execs are played by Robert Reed, Marjo Gortner, and William Shatner. So uh, uh Papa Brady, Captain yes. Kirk. <laughs> Marjo Gortner, the the, 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 pre the preacher, and uh and uh and yeah, Andy Andy Taylor. Uh, it's wild, it's wild, and then as if that's not bad enough, Angie Dickinson and Janet Margolin show up just to just to give it a little bit of female power. Weirdest movie ever, utterly unbelievably strange and bizarre, and it it's a thriller. I mean, it, you would think it's a comedy from the people involved, but it's it's a, it's a, it's a thriller. <laughs> there's actually kind of a there's a there's a trick to it. You know, it's like Andy's got something up his sleeve, and uh, it's just it's just a weird movie directed by Robert Michael Lewis, who I never heard of. Not sure. I, and Jack Turley wrote it. Don't know who these people are. But man, what a weird movie! Pray for the Wildcats. What an insanely strange movie. Anyway, there's our stack of, uh, of regular Kino Studio classics uh, for this month. And, man, what a, what a great bunch they are. Um, a lot of fun stuff in there. Tim, I am going to let you now talk about Star Wars, The Rise yeah. of Skywalker, which we got on 4K. And I'm going to say all I'm going to say on my end is this is an unbelievably beautiful 4K. This, will, this just sets a whole new standard for 4K mastering. It is phenomenal to look at. As a movie, take it away. Well, look, the movie, and, 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 and I am going to get you to describe um, what sort of extras that, that comes with, because I'm sure. sure it's going to be all kinds of stuff on that 4K. J.J. Abrams, uh, you know, uh, sort of wrapping out um, uh, this series with this extremely, extremely derivative film um, that ultimately is extremely talky as it tries to talk its way through its narrative. It's as if they're trying to work it out uh, as they're going along. Right. Yeah. And, you, and, and you see these there are these big chunks of film where Kylo Ren, you know, uh, yeah, 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 our, 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 our boy, uh, Adam Driver and Daisy Ray, Daisy Ridley are talking. And and you get the sense that, you know what? I think they're kind of writing this out as they go. <laughs> yeah, it seems it seems like they're sort of just working it out anyway. Not a particularly satisfying wrap up to the series. Some of the action pieces are pretty fantastic. Some of the, I, I must say, some of the set pieces are pretty fantastic, and action sequences are pretty fantastic. But it's just not a satisfying sort of wrap out to the series. Now, I've been saying for a long time that these movies are, have, have started to eat each other. Yeah, you know, it's, it's and 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 this one is just a sort of ultimate representation of that. It's engaged in a sort of fan service to the extent that the that every few moments in the film. Um, you're, you're engaged in one of these, oh, 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 that, you know, sort of moments because it's, it's so heavily engaged in fan service. But anyway, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I, I've been disappointed. Look, if I'm honest with myself, I, out of nine movies and, you know, 11, if we include the, the two non-canonical Star Wars things, I really only like two of them. And I really yeah. don't, I don't even like Star Wars that much, but I really like Empire. 
And other than, and you know, episode three is, you know, it's got its moments, but episode one and two are garbage, and I, I hate Return of the Jedi, and I haven't really liked any of these last three. I kind of feel it's all derivative fan service, like you said. So, I mean, look, as a technical exercise, there's some really, really good stuff in it. Um, there's some good direction. There's there's some great effects, but on on balance, I I don't think I. It feels like these last three films they they didn't really plan them out very well. And there's no excuse for that. It just it just feels like they uh, they 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 sort of uh, switched it up in the second one, and then they didn't like where that was going, and then they kind of you know backtracked and retconned everything for the third one. It, it feels very haphazard. So I'm I'm hoping I'm wrong, but uh, I don't I don't have a lot of hope for the the Star Wars universe going forward. Um, you know, got another interesting new film here: Standing Up, Falling Down, with uh, Billy Crystal and Ben Schwartz. Mm. Um, this is uh, this is a really interesting little movie. Almost uh, escaped my radar. Um, had a had you know I, I didn't realize that we had even gotten this, and you know things have been chaotic here. But this was at uh, last year's Tri- Tribeca Film Festival, and completely was not on my radar as a uh, as a theatrical release. And uh, Billy Crystal has kind of not done movies a lot in the last yeah. decade or so, and uh, he's kind of gone away. And you forget what a really really good actor he is um here he's kind of playing second fiddle to um ben schwartz from uh, parks and rec who uh plays this well let's see he they they're they're effectively um playing kind of a a father-son duo but they're not father and son you're talking about a guy uh ben schwartz who um is having certain life issues, let's just say. And Billy Crystal uh, plays this guy named Marty, who is this uh, this dermatologist, and um, he has other life issues. And uh, you bring together these two guys from different generations and different life experience, and there are some really, really there's some really interesting alchemical things that happen between the two characters. I'll just say it's. Uh, it's really, really quite smart, and it, uh, it reminded me. And and I, I think I'm going back to the to, to the to the uh, maybe it was the early '90s or late '80s. Billy Crystal and Alan King, right? A little bit, Mr. Saturday Night. Oh, oh, not not Mr. Saturday Night. You're not, talking about close the to um, that one. But the other Al, one, Alan, Alan yeah. King, was, he was his dad. Billy Crystal was the son. Yeah, Alan, he was the dad. That's right. Alan King played the uh, the king of the extras, right? Yes, yes. You remember that? This movie reminded yeah. me of that. That's like the late 80s. So I can't really, I got Memories of Me. That's Memories it. of Me. Yes, That's good call. This, this was so reminiscent of that to me, only with Billy playing the Alan King part. Yes. Uh, which was so funny because Billy played a doctor in that movie, a young you know, doctor. He came out, his, his dad's this guy who's this uh, uh, the extra, the king of the extras. And they have this whole sort of relationship. Going, and I'm watching this little movie, Standing Up, Falling Down. I'm thinking to myself, how come, I, I thought, why do I feel like I've seen this movie before? Yeah. I mean, because Billy made it 30 years ago, only he was playing the other guy. That's and a it's, great, it's, it's, it's I'd forgotten. a beautiful little movie. And, you know, that movie was directed by uh, Henry Winkler. Exactly. Memories of me. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. that. I I remember that. Now, this is directed by Matt Ratner, who I'm with whom I'm not familiar, but uh, it's it's he's definitely solid. He's got a he's got a good firm hand on his actors, and uh, it's a good solid little script by Peter Hoare. So it was just great to see Billy, dude. Just love yeah. seeing Billy. He's so funny. Totally uh, in, in this little movie. Um, I got this movie called uh, A Transference. Yeah. Uh, that, that came out uh, you know, not not too long ago. Sci-fi movie, basically. Kind of a supernatural sort of thing. Pretty good to my mind. 
uh, uh, but you know, you'll have to see what you think. So this guy, he has his sister. She possesses these supernatural powers, and he's trying to do everything he can to stop her from getting uh, grabbed by these uh, secret agents hunting that want to put her into one of these classified government uh, experimental programs. So uh, it's it's you know a fairly ordinary sort of story, but I like the way it's all sort of laid out, and most of it sort of takes place in the countryside, uh, like in rural areas as opposed to big cities. And I thought that that was sort of interesting too. Reminded me a little bit of that one that Michael Shannon made a few a few years ago um uh where he was paranoid uh, uh oh yeah 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 that that whole thing yeah. it reminded me of, like it's a lot of paranoia in this one like that i thought it was kind of cool too dug it science fiction film terrific that's from yeah. epic uh we also have uh, a a horror film kind of a cult horror film called uh, verotica um that is a combination of erotica and veronica if you're yeah. not uh, catching the uh, the drift there, um, and uh, this was at a number of kind of these uh, these cult uh, film festivals, there are a lot of those around the world, and uh, this one is uh, definitely in. It's really low budget. It's really low budget, and they got a lot of kind of kind of punk metal uh, music on it, and uh, it's it, it's basically kind of like um, Tales from the Crypt made for about thirty cents. <laughs> if that's what it is it's a it's an anthology it's three different stories uh and uh, they're all taken apparently from a comic book uh a danzig comic book called verotic which i've never heard of i'm not familiar with you know i, I guess danzig is danzig a comic book company or something or, or mm. whatever it is anyway uh, Glenn Danzig, who I assume is the guy behind the comic book, wrote and directed it, and uh, you know, it's uh, look, it's it's silly and it's gory and it's occultish and it's uh, it's ultimately really very very funny and it's made for a buck fifty and uh, you know, it's it's the, the these movies wouldn't be worth watching if they if they weren't made for a buck fifty. Um, documentary here, I want us to talk about for a second, mystify Michael Hutchins. Which, oh yes. Uh, which was in theaters um, about a month ago, and uh, it was it was a I think it was a one night only thing through uh, uh, Fathom Events, and now it's out on Blu-ray, so everybody can see it, and you don't have to worry about it one night only. This is a tremendous documentary. I am admittedly a big fan of In Excess and, and oh, Michael yeah. Hutchins, and uh, you know his suicide was so so tragic and just hit me like a like a ton of bricks at the time. This is uh, directed and written by Richard Lowenstein, who uh, has been with in excess for decades. He was there at the beginning, directed a lot of their best music videos, has done documentaries and tour videos about them. Uh, Lowenstein is a very, very accomplished filmmaker and documentarian and music video director. And uh, this basically is a an examine. It's not just a straight bio of Michael Hutchins. It sort of looks, it's got all, I mean, all the archival footage you could possibly want. And he goes back and he interviews everybody about what went wrong, what happened. Kylie Minogue, who was uh, Hutchins' girlfriend when they were young pop stars together, um, he, he just he re revisits everyone, and and what it, and it has a reveal in it, which is really heartbreaking. Which is that there was an incident in Denmark um, back in like the early '90s, I want to say, mm. where there was an altercation with a taxi driver who punched. Michael Hutchins in the face and knocked him backwards and he fell and he hit his head on the curb and it knocked him out. And nothing was thought of it until years later when it was revealed that he had traumatic brain injury mm. that utterly and completely changed his personality. It damaged his sense of smell 
Um, and it changed him and his, and his band members and everyone who knew him, they, they are convinced that that was the beginning of the end that led him to suicide. So we're not talking about somebody who suffered from chronic depression, drug abuse or any of this stuff that, I mean, there is drug abuse involved, but it's a self-medication. It's all in, in response to the, the absolute tragedy of traumatic brain injury. And, uh, yeah. that one incident, it's a really good documentary. Not the classic sort of story of the, you know, the 27 foreign thing. He was 37 years old when he died, yeah. uh, but not the sort of classic. No. Uh, that, that at all, a completely sort of different dynamic. Yeah. And, and, and the, and the, the, you know, it, it gets even more tragic because the part of the story right at the end where, where he, he basically breaks up, um, the, the marriage of, uh, of, um, uh, what's his name? The British. Oh, why am I drawing a blank now? Mm. Uh, we, we are the world farm aid. Um, oh, uh, uh Geldor. <laughs> Thank you. He, he, you know, he busts up Bob Geldof's marriage and absconds with Geldof's wife, and that created this horrible custody battle. And that was, you know, that really partly is what precipitated it too. And there was drug abuse there, and it just—it's such a tragic story. It just really, really is. But what a great documentary! I, I highly recommend it. Mystify, Michael Hutchins, definitely worth checking out. What should we? Uh, what should we jump into now? Uh, uh... Do you want to get on to some of that TV? Business? Yeah, I'll, let's, I'll, let's do TV. I'll, I'll, I'll join you on some of that. Um, uh, Ultraman Orb is at the top of that list, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, um, uh, which is uh, Ultraman uh, Orb, I, the movie, and Ultraman Deed, the movie. Both of them. They, uh, big, big, big anime, correct? Yeah, basically. I mean, they're they're live action, but uh, they're they're Blu-ray live action, and uh, they it, this is from Mill Creek, and I didn't know that they had taken these two series and kind of uh, made TV movies out of them. But it, it looked it looks cool. I hadn't had a chance to watch it, but uh, you're you're big you're a big Ultraman fan of the newer stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. All this, particularly particularly most of the animated animated stuff is uh, absolutely fantastic. Anything anything interesting in terms of the special features on those discs? Absolutely, flat out nothing. <laughs> there's, there's nothing here. They've got you know you can redeem them for uh, the spree the the library. Uh, you know they've got the um, uh, Mill Creek has their own streaming service, their own kind of version of Movies Anywhere or or Voodoo, which is uh, spree. Dot moviespree.com so you can you know you can you can certainly add those to your library there if you want anyway yeah I, i'm a big fan of this series going back to the 60s uh it's when i used to love all my ultraman uh, uh business uh there uh the norwegian television series uh twins oh it's good what, what you can tell me about that one bro yeah tw hold on hold on i'm uh Dropping stuff all over the place here. Uh, you know, a twin is really, really good. This is from MHZ Networks. You can do uh, MHZ Choice as a streaming network if you want to watch a lot of this really, really cool stuff. Um, this is a uh, basically a, a six-hour uh, series on three DVDs. A, uh, a really, really cool uh, uh, crime drama from Norway that stars um, Christopher... Hivju, who was known for playing Tormund Giants Bane in Game of Thrones. Oh. Okay. They all have beards. I don't know who's who on Game of Thrones. You know what I mean? They're all kind of the same. But um, this is really, really cool. All of these uh, Scandinavian crime dramas, whether they're Danish, whether they're Swedish, whether they're Norwegian, they all kind of do something a little bit similar. And they, they're all looking to use the environment of Scandinavia as an additional character. And the same thing happens here. And it, the, the, the concept here is um, that you've got uh, two twin brothers 
who are um, very, very, whose lives have gone in completely different directions. And um, the, they, they come together. I'm, I'm, how do I, I'm going to try to figure out how to not give anything away because, yeah. because a lot of this spans several episodes, but it's been many, many years since they've seen each other. And when they finally see each other again, something happens. And that is the inception of uh, w- the rest of this series, which takes place in this area called the Lofton Islands, or the Lofoten Islands, I think is maybe how you do it. And um, those islands are, are just a fascinating place, like really fascinating. For example, I didn't know you could go surfing in Norway. Oh, wow. Yeah, right? Who knew? Uh, I, you, just, you just think of surfing as a thing that you do. Close yeah, here. Clo- here, we don't. <laughs> yeah. You don't. Once you go north, you know. Once you're anywhere further north than, say, northern France or Normandy, you know, people don't surf anymore. It's too cold, right? No, they're surfing in Norway, and uh, it's a really, it's a really interesting narrative. It's a, it's a very, very smart, slow burn, but I, uh, I recommend it. Uh, Tim, what do you think of, of Lethal Weapon? We're in our third season now of Lethal Weapon. It's on Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Third season of Lethal Weapon. David Wayans. First of all, if you had told me that that was going to last three seasons, but you know, I've always, I've always been these these movies uh, adapted to you know the t- uh, television series yeah. of our youth. I've always, I've had issues with these ever since they started. Nevertheless, there it is. Uh, yeah, they did manage to pull off changing uh, um, uh, uh, characters, uh, actors midway through. Uh, or I guess I guess a season through that that yeah. show, but uh, uh, Damon Wayans as Roger Murtaugh. Uh, I, I don't know, man. When I think back to the original uh, Lethal Weapon series, yeah, with uh, with our guy Danny Glover and of course uh, Mel Gibson's Damon Wayans is not who comes to my mind. It's like <laughs> no. he scaled everything down fifteen years yeah. from the television series yeah. from where it was in that whatever I guess it was whatever that movie was, nineteen eighty four. Or whatever it is, but here we are in the third complete season. Anything decent on that no, uh, Blu-ray? Not really. I mean, Sean William Scott is, joins the the team this time, but <clears throat> it's like it's it's more of a. I mean, they changed Murtaugh's family, and uh, you know, it's, like nothing is. I mean, it's just nothing. It, the title is the only thing that's got in common. Yeah. You know, it's 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 the title, and it's a black and a white guy, and there's nothing else about it that has anything to do with it. So I, just, I never did figure out why they the, the, the original guy his, his name was Clay Crawford who played Martin yeah. Riggs the, yeah. you know, the you know, you know, Mel Gibson yeah uh, in that in the first series the first three uh, I guess it would be the uh, first two seasons and Sean uh, uh, comes into this season and I don't know it's just it's just a weird thing to do but they seem it, to have pulled it off well it's weird because uh, Sean William Scott plays a former CIA guy who becomes an LAPD cop how often does that happen never <laughs> what. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense at all. Um, hey, man, what yeah. happened with that, uh, the original series V uh, released on Blu-ray? I, so, I love that series. I think from about 1983. Yeah. Uh, it was huge. The, 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 the reboot of the remake was all high-tech and kind of glossy, but I still prefer this one. Yeah. I, I like this one because it's cheesy. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to tell this dumb story, you, you want it to be as cheesy as possible. And, uh, boy, it sure is cheesy. Uh, Kenneth Johnson who did, you know, just tons of sci-fi back in the 80s and, and the 90s, uh, but mostly in the 80s. Uh, this is 1983. Yeah, and the 70s, frankly. Kenneth Johnson, I think, directed a lot of, a lot of $6 million mans and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. So he wrote and directed this, and uh, it's definitely got that vibe to it. Um, I, You know, it's a huge, huge cast. Mark Singer basically is the hero of this. He was kind of a... Mark Singer was a bit of a thing from the Beastmaster on into yeah. this uh, during that early part of the 80s. Um, 
Uh, and you know what? If you're gonna have lizard, you just—it's gotta be—they're lizard people for crying out loud, man! A, a woman gives birth to a lizard baby. You gotta be cheesy. Don't make it too serious. Uh, they have a commentary by Kenneth Johnson, which is really fun because he quite clearly understands that this is not meant to be taken that seriously. And then there's a behind-the-scenes documentary, and uh, it's the original V. What do you want? It's on Blu-ray. Uh, you know, you, 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 what I loved about that series is every single episode of that series, one of the lizard – and they learned how to disguise themselves as humans. Yeah. But in every single episode, one of their human suits would be torn. <laughs> And you could see that it was one of the lizard people behind that thing there. Uh, the, Kaminsky, the Kaminsky method. Uh, yeah. Was the, uh, first uh, season. First full season on Blu-ray. Yeah. Uh, love this series. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Michael Douglas, Alan Arkin, uh, and the uh, Chuck Lorre created and directed series. Uh, uh, these two old guys doing some of the best work of their careers. Uh, funny that you and I have experienced most of, if not all of, certainly Michael Douglas could, Michael Douglas's career. Yeah. I mean, my first Michael Douglas is Streets of San Francisco in the early 70s. Uh, you know, when I'm a kid watching Michael Douglas on television. Uh, and a good chunk of Alan Arkin's career. And here they are uh, still doing what they do and kind of making fun of themselves as they do it. I love this series. See, that's what's great about the show. It took me a little bit to get into it. A good friend of ours um, uh, from the box office days, Ben Rosenstein, is the one that recommended this to me. And uh, got me watching it on, uh, <coughs> excuse me, on Netflix. And uh, it's what I like about this is, yes, they're making fun of themselves and they're making fun of their careers. And they're also kind of waxing poetic about it at the same time. But because Chuck Lorre is working in the streaming space now where he doesn't have to crank out 22 half hours of, you know, uh, uh, Roseanne or, you know, uh, two and a half men or whatever it is. And he's not working within a network constraint. He's he's eight episodes. You only got to do eight episodes. So yeah. he does. He 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 seems to be much more comfortable. It's like he can craft the characters better. It's not all about a punchline every eight seconds, right? There's a, there's actually some feeling to this. It's a very unusual turn for Chuck Lorre. I got to admit, I, I respect him more as a writer after this than any than than after all the different shows he's done over the last twenty years. You know, Big Big Bang Theory and all the rest of this. Those are all funny, and they all have a lot of shtick and a lot of good one liners, but they're not deep. This is really rich. Yeah, yeah, an absolutely lovely uh, uh, series with, with these with these guys. Just like I said, really doing some of the best work of their career. Uh, Blind Spot is this the complete fourth season that, is. that we have here yeah. uh, of Blind Spot? Watch well, season one and two kind of fell off uh, around season three. I'm not so I'm not really sure where this picks up. Uh, but I rather enjoyed this series and thought it was pretty slick at the time. Uh, anything interesting on that Blu-ray? Not uh, not especially. You know, it's uh, it, it it is interesting that it has it comes around now you're looking at everything through the, the prism of the uh, the coronavirus at the moment and there's a little there's some stuff going on here you know uh where they have to where there's a disease uh they have to get to you know there's a drug that has wiped someone's memory and they've got to sort of uh, find a cure and they've got to search around the globe and it, it has a certain coronavirus vibe to it um, but, uh, you, you know, it, it still stretches credibility a little bit. It, it, I think, I think shows that sort of get into the global espionage thing without the budget to sort of make it feel global, um, are shortchanging themselves a little bit. Uh, I, I, it doesn't feel quite as A-list as it probably should, but it's, it's fine. It's adequate. You know, it, it, it has a following. Uh, 
Not bad, not bad. The the um uh, the one hundred a series that I watched most of. This is the complete sixth season. Original uh, sixth season. Yeah, oh, sixth season. The sixth season. Yeah. Of uh, of, uh, of of the one hundred. Isaiah, one of our friends, Isaiah uh, Washington, on the show. Anything interesting there? Not especially. They have the complete series out as well. They did not send us the complete series. They sent us ah. just the uh, just the sixth season. But um, you know, I, I like the cast. I, I really do. I mean, for a for a one of these post apocalyptic shows. And there, there were a bunch that all came out around about the same time. I think this is the one that really did it the best. Uh, it put a really good cast together. <coughs> and um, every time I, I, I cough, I think, is it a dry cough? <laughs> it's, it's a thing. Uh, you know, I, I, have to, I have to tell this joke right now because um, uh, a friend of ours is out uh, – well – I, I won't get into what he's doing, but one of our one of our friends is out working on the front lines of this thing, right. and and uh, he heard a trucker the other day say, and this is the greatest line ever. He said, "You know, I used to cough to cover my farts, and now, <laughs> and now I fart to cover my coughs." <gasps> oh, I thought that's so. Leave it to a trucker to come up with a line like that. I could, you and I could sit around in front of a keyboard just trying to think of a funny line. And so, <laughs> some some guy driving a Peterbilt out near uh, you know Rosemead comes up with that without even blinking. There's so much talent out there. Anyway, no, but the the one hundred the sixth season, um, you know, solid, real solid, and uh, it, it, it all it does all the things that these post apocalyptic movies and TV shows usually do, but it does it with a, a smarter chemistry. I kind of wish Lost had had a cast like this. And 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 a hell of a lot of production value too. The first the first yeah, uh, couple that's of seasons it. of that you have these sort of two dynamics. You have this you know this this uh, this platform, this sort of ship. Uh, where humanity is hovering uh, over the earth and the and the ideas that uh, earth is uninhabitable yep. uh, and it's a pretty sort of brutal existence and then uh, over the course of a few seasons we we work our way into some interesting things uh, that in, that that include a a rift uh, between various different sects of people and they they build the stories out fairly fairly intensely I rather enjoyed that series the one hundred indeed. Uh, the first, what do we have here? The first is the first complete season of Legacies. Yes, the complete first season of Legacies, not on Blu-ray, only on DVD. And uh, this is—I I don't know. Have you have you watched any of this show? Oh yeah, sure. It's, yeah, vampires. You, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's all kind of in that same vein with the Vampire Diaries and the originals. And uh, I, I don't know. It, it's I don't know why we have to. They, they always put them in a school. This is all they, they all kind of have this school of it, it's, it's a Harry Potter thing. Right. You know, it's the Salvatore school for the young and gifted. OK, but why do we always got to be in school? Like, you know, I, I just I don't get it. I don't yeah, know. It's, always with the magicians and the witches and the vampires is always there. The werewolves, you know. Yeah. I Yeah. So anyway, it's it's basically the Harry Potter version of all that stuff. I, I, you know, I've, I watched a couple of episodes. I, I guess I'll probably try to give it a chance and, and see where else it goes. Um, Scooby-Doo, Return to Zombie Island. This is a really utterly silly original Scooby-Doo movie. Uh, it's it's on DVD. Uh, you know what? I mean, it's not, uh, it's not going it, to, it's not terrible, but it, at 80 minutes long, it really overstays its welcome, I think. Yeah. <laughs> there's, just too, there's just too many of these, and they all do the same thing. But you know what? There's a whole generation now that uh, they don't know the original Scooby-Doo, and I guess if this works for them, then fine, so be it. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Ginlock complete first season. Is that what we got on Blu-ray? Yeah, it's a uh, you know basically anime inspired uh, Hollywood mecha stuff. 
takes place uh, five decades into the future, and you know, there's kind of a uh, a fascistic change in the world, and it's we're, it's not quite post-apocalyptic, but it's definitely like futuristic. Uh, uh, futuristic near apocalypse. Anyway, um, a lot of really good voice casting here, though. Michael B. Jordan, Dakota Fanning, uh, Aja Kate Dillon, David Tennant. Really interesting, uh, interesting voices, and they all do it. You know, that's what really kind of holds it together. Is it's not the the robot suits and the the battles. It's that they got real actors to do the voices. It's very, very that's good. Uh, I'm looking at un- Unexplained Season 1. The only interesting thing about Unexplained, the Unexplained series, there, there, there are a number of them, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you sit down, you watch one of these Unexplained. Uh, and, in fact, uh, all of that stuff is perfectly explainable. <laughs> Every single time. Every single time. You watch one of these things, I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, I know the explanation for that. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, whatever, the whole series. But you know why you watch this? You don't watch this for the unexplained or the explainable. No. You, you, you watch it because it's got William Shatner on it. Hell yeah. It, 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 it might as well be called, you know, William Shatner's Garden. I don't care. William Shatner, uh, you know, goes to the copy store and, and makes copies. I don't care. I just want to watch William Shatner do some stuff. It, that's it. I just know if Leonard Nemo was still alive, he'd have some series called Explain. He would just un, undo everything oh. of that. But SpongeBob season 11. Yeah, SpongeBob. Uh, did we need a season 11 of SpongeBob? <laughs> really? I don't, I don't know. Do I we really know. need I this? I, I, mean, I mean, truly, I, I, my daughter is not into this at all. Probably never will be. And, I, you know, I'm watching some of these and I'm thinking, but this looks like the same stuff they've been doing over the past 10 years. Do we need oh, 11? SpongeBob at this point is directed at like 28-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a good point. That's, that is not, that, that's not for you. For you. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, anyway, there's a special feature on here, Plankton's Color Nullifier, which tells you that even the people putting these DVDs and Blu-rays out are bored. They don't even want to bother with any decent extras anymore. Um, the, and the last TV stuff we got here, uh, three volumes, and the third one just came out. The other two have come out previously, but I want to talk about all three of them. Three volumes of Popeye the Sailor, the 1940s, volume one, two, and three. Uh, absolutely tremendous. <clears throat> Excuse me. There are 46 theatrical shorts between these. There are 14 shorts on volume 1, 17 on uh, volume 3, and 15 on volume 2. But pretty much all the best Popeyes are these. The 1940s Popeyes are absolutely superb. They they establish the characters, the conflicts, everything that any subsequent Popeye incarnation would uh, would go into, these did it the best. And they have been all completely remastered from the original negatives, the original Technicolor and Cinecolor negatives, there were two different color processes that were uh, used, and uh, it, it's it's just uh, they're they're just so smart. They're so absolutely incredibly smart, and uh, you, you just can't go wrong. Olive oil and Popeye and Bluto and 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 Wimpy. I mean, it's just it's a great great bunch, and I'm. I'm particularly uh, uh, fond of the world of Popeye because, uh, you know, Richard Libertini was a very, very good friend of mine. I yeah. grew, up, grew up with his son, and he played uh, Giesel in the uh, the live-action Robert Altman Popeye with uh, with Robin Williams, which they shot yeah. on Malta. And I remember very well when they were shooting that. And, uh, you know, that's an underrated film, too. I think that Altman did some of his best work in that thing, and no one gave him credit for it. But yeah. uh, it's really wonderful to see these old Popeye cartoons again, and they're so colorful. I don't think they even looked this good at the time they were originally released, to be honest. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's great stuff. 
All right. Uh, let's see. What else do we do? We have here. Uh, we're, by the way, we are going to wrap the show out today with uh, an interview. We're going to do this a few more minutes, and then we have an interview with our very, very good friend Stephen Farber, um, uh, former president of the uh, Los Angeles Film Critics Association and uh, a very dear friend of ours, current member of the City Film Critics, uh, LA Film Critics Association. He just wrote a new book with his friend Michael McClellan called Cinema 62, The Greatest Year at the Movies. And Tim and I had a chance to talk to him this morning and, uh, and, and talk about this book. And it's, it's a great book. It's just a really great book. Um, and we'll get more into that later when we run that interview. But um, let's see. Uh, where else should we go now? Are we going to bump up with some of those classic titles? Yeah, let's do some of those. Let's do some of the classic stuff. I, I, I want to I give a shout out to uh, Munster Go Home. Which I just absolutely adore. You know, there were a few um, uh, f- feature-length monster movies. I think two complete after the series wrapped. And uh, Monster Go Home, full color, not black and white, full color. So you see all of the the creepy color and the green skin and all that stuff. Man, this is just so unbelievably hilarious. Monster Go Home is now on Blu-ray from Shout Factory Scream Factory line, and basically Herman inherits a fortune in England. And then you have the the British family that wants to uh, basically kill them and get them out of the way so that they can take the inheritance back. And it is the best thing about this, as much as I love the Munsters, the best thing about this is Terry Thomas. Terry Thomas is always talking about bashing him on the cranium with something jagged. It is so (laughs) damn funny. This movie is so funny. I really, really love this. And uh, there's a commentary on this. Believe it or not, Tim, you're going to die. This is the greatest commentary ever. I don't know whose idea this was, but it was genius. They went and they dug up Butch Patrick, who oh. played right Eddie Munster, yes, and said, who can Eddie Munster do the commentary with? I know Rob Zombie. <laughs> they got Butch Patrick and Rob Zombie do the commentary together. And it's great. <laughs> It's so good. That is just it's so good. All kinds of stories I'd never even heard of before. Butch Patrick. I mean, there's a lot of real great sarcasm in there too. But anyway, it's terrific. And then uh, there is also a bonus feature film on here, The Monster's Revenge, which they don't tout enough, and uh, they should because that's actually really really fun as well. So that was made for television. But uh, Monster Go Home from uh, 1966, really really great, and a great audio commentary. Got to check it out. It's a lot of fun. Am I insane, or or is it the 25th anniversary of Tommy Boy? Yes, it is. Isn't that wild? I just this is this makes me dizzy. My goddaughter is only 28 years old. This is the 25th anniversary. Wonderful, Chris Farley and David Spade, of yeah. course. Yeah, uh, you know SNL alum, uh, making this really sort of almost surprisingly goofy, dumb, and sweet, sweet, sweet movie that was a big, big hit. Yeah. Uh, that launched them on what would be what a what did they do two or three more movies together if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they did several. I uh, Tommy Boy is the one that everybody remembers, and yeah, I can't believe it's been that long. Chris Farley feels like he just he died yesterday, but oh, I, I, you know, I mean, yeah, this is a new steel book, an anniversary steel book um, for Tommy Boy, and uh, I I don't think people gave these movies enough credit at the time. I'll be honest. I really, it, there's just it's so funny. Chris Farley is so. So funny in these things. Um, Peter Siegel directed this. And, uh, you know, we forget Rob Lowe's in this. Yeah. And Bo Derek is in this. And Brian Dennehy plays, of course, Chris Farley's dad. That's great casting. Um, but, yeah, this is, a, uh, you know, this is a really fun film. Uh, it's just too bad. 
Well, anyway, yes, 25 years since Tommy Boy. Boy, man, holy shnikes. That's all I can say. <laughs> holy shnikes. I, I imagine there's got to be all kinds of fantastic uh, stuff on Oh, that. yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a ton of extras on here. There's commentary by Peter Siegel, a bunch of featurettes, um, storyboard comparisons, deleted and extended scenes, alternate takes. And oddly enough, even a gag reel, which is surprisingly funny, because you would think all the funny stuff wound up in the movie. But there's a lot of great stuff in the gag reel, too. Chris Farley is just funny all the time. And do you ever watch David Spade's uh, uh, talk show at night? Oh, sure. Yeah. Love, love, love that show. He's, uh, it, he's, it's, it's so interesting, the stories he tells. They, see, that's the thing. He, it, it seems like almost at least once or twice a week, he has a Chris Farley story. And and it's it's always you know he's just there's all and it's always new, you know the, just the crazy things that Chris Farley did when they were shooting SNL like Farley would run into his office and slam the door and hide you know because he just did something to somebody it just Farley was always up to something really a larger than life personality did you, did you ever meet Chris Farley? Oh yeah, once or twice. Uh, yeah. Let's see, what was the one where he played the ninja, Beverly Hills? Oh yeah, ninja. yeah. Uh, did the junket for that and, uh, and and talk with Chris. He was very very sweet. Yeah, uh, yeah, man, man. Actually, I think it was not long after that that we lost Chris. Yeah, in that movie. It was Beverly Hills Ninja or something? Like yeah, that. something like that. I saw I saw him once at a, at a hotel. I saw him in the lobby of the uh, Shutters Hotel in Santa Monica once, just kind of cruising oh, through yeah, the lobby right down on the beach. Yeah. yeah. And he was, he was just wearing a t-shirt and, and Bermuda, Bermuda shorts in the dead of winter. And I guess, you know, that, that's who he was. These 3d rarities. Uh, I find absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, which is just a series of these very, very early uh, archive of these very, very early sort of uh, 3d films. I think a lot of them from Kino, if I'm not mistaken, um, uh, from the early fifties, all the way through like the middle sixties of these 3d films. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting how these technologies, how old some of these technologies, Technologies that we think of as new or modern technologies, and, and you know we do 3D films in different ways now than they did back then. Back, yep. back then, it really just involved a whole bunch of cameras. Yep. Um, uh, now we do digital things and whatnot. But these rarities uh, are absolutely fascinating. They're, they're, they're really good. It's uh, these are very very rare 3D films. This is the second volume of these that have come from the 3D film archive, and um, they uh, they have audio commentaries on that sort of help you uh, get the uh, get the feel of why and how these things were. I mean, you look at the 3D today, and it's not it's probably nothing spectacular compared to the you know our recent 3D burst. But um, there's some really interesting stuff here, like notably El Corazón y la Espada. I'm sure my Spanish is going to just devastate somebody, but um, that's a that is a feature length 3D film, the translation of which is the Heart and the Sword or the Sword of Granada, and this was the first 3D movie ever made in Mexico, and yeah. and um, they've done a 4K restoration of it and uh, restored it to its original aspect ratio and I mean really meticulously. And it's it's very interesting because um, it's it's not at all what 3D was here at the time. You know, it's very very different. But um, it's got Cesar Romero in it. You know, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. and that's got to be worth something too. Uh, there's also the Black Swan, which uh, has a commentary by uh, Mike Ballou that also has it gives you. It's it's really it's very very sharp. It's very sharp. And uh, then there's also some um, stereoscopic photographs from the the library of uh, Harold Lloyd. So, uh, really it's, it's fascinating. There's, you know, the, I, I don't like 3d, but, um, if you have a 3d HD TV, which you need, 
uh, and they don't make many of those anymore. And you've got a, three, a Blu-ray 3D, a, a 3D Blu-ray player, or one of those uh, PlayStations that will uh, will do it. You'll be able to watch these and really get a experience film history in a in a fascinating new way. So uh, I don't often recommend 3D stuff, but I think we we recommend that one. That's definitely yeah, cool. And, yeah, for just a sort of historical context. Yeah. Um, their finest hour that uh, a series of five classic. British yeah. World War II films, uh, in, 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 in including uh, a Graham Greene adaptation. This is an amazing set. It is. This is a great set. Uh, the most impressive of all of these is probably Dunkirk, not the most recent Christopher Nolan film, but the original 1958 uh, Leslie Norman-directed film uh, that tells the basically the exact same story, except it, uh, it does it in a more epic way, believe it or not. Uh, John Mills and Richard Attenborough, very mm. young at the time in 1958, star... And uh, the movie uh, was made only 18 years. You know, 1958 is only 18 years after the actual event itself. So, yeah. you know, there are uh, a lot of the people acting in this remember when it happened. They were they were alive when it happened. Made by Ealing Studios, best known for comedies, but uh, not this time. Uh, Michael Anderson, who would go on to do things like uh, uh, the uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, directed the Dam Busters in 1955, which is. Um, uh, specifically about uh, the RAF squadron that uh, was was assigned to blow, blow up German dams. And um, allegedly, I didn't know this, but allegedly this is what inspired the uh, end of Star Wars when they blow up the Death Star. Ah. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Had no yeah. idea. Had no idea. Uh, also from 1958, the same year as Dunkirk, is Ice Cold and Alex, which was directed by Tim J. Lee Thompson. Yeah, J. Lee at work. John Mills again. And uh, this is all about a, 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 a treacherous road trip, a medical unit that has to go across uh, the North Africa to, uh, to safety. Um, it, you know, it's, it's uh, anything in North Africa I like because that's, that's the undertold story of World War II. The Coldest Story from 1955 as well, directed by Guy Hamilton. Again, great uh, James Bond director. Uh, and uh, this is all about a, a group of allied prisoners of war trying to make a, a break for it from the prisoner of war camp or prison at Coldest's Castle. Once again, starring John Mills, everybody's favorite World War II guy. And then the earliest of these made actually during the war is Went the Day Well, which is directed by Alberto Cavalcanti based on the Graham Greene story. Another Ealing Studios production, um, which is basically about a Ger an English village trying to figure out where the German spies are. Pretty great stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. So all, yeah, all, yeah. all five of these are really good films on Blu-ray uh, from yeah. Film Movement Classics. It's great stuff. Fantastic stuff, man. I got to tell you. I got to tell you. Uh, uh, Hudson River Massacre, which was actually released, uh, I, I guess, in the United States as Canadian Wilderness in 1965. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, these uh, fur hunters out in the wilderness. There's a kidnapping uh, and uh, a, a ruthless land owner. It's it's very something akin to I don't know uh, some of the John Ford John Wayne uh, films uh, in the in, in the middle 40s here. So anyway, it's a pretty neat film. Anything on that DVD, uh, Wade? Uh, for uh, well, I guess we're we're calling it Hudson River Massacre, but like yeah. I said, it's, uh, it was called Canadian Wilderness. Yeah. No, no extras, but uh, you know it, it, it's. It is certainly a film that I didn't even know existed. I'll tell you that. I, you just so find it's Italian. Things. It's an Italian film set, yeah. in, set in the Canadian wilderness. It's just in Italian. It's just so strange. It's just such a. It's like a weird artifact that came out, came across our radar. I'm like, really? No, no extras. 
No extras. Uh, we've also got uh, the Bolshevik Trilogy, which are uh, the three most famous films made by the uh, legendary silent era uh, Russian director, Soviet director. Uh, I, uh, Sev- I'm not going to do his first name. Podovkin. We all know him as Podovkin. Yeah, yeah, Podovkin. His first name is impl- uh, unpronounceable. But the, uh, the three films are Mother, The End of St. Petersburg, and Storm Over Asia. Uh, Mother is considered one of the all-time greats of the era. It's it's just a you know uh, from 1926, really considered one of the great silent films. Not just si- great uh, Russian silence, but se- just one of the uh, the legendary uh, silent films of all time. Based on the uh, Maxim Gorky novel, um, it's an it's an essential. You got to have it. This just get this set essentially for that one movie. Uh, Storm Over Asia was made two years later. Um, this is a new 2K remaster from Lobster Films, taken from the original Preservation Elements, with a score by Timothy Bach and the uh, Olympia Chamber Orchestra. And then between those two is the least interesting of the three films, The End of St. Petersburg from 1927, which is basically just kind of a 10th uh, a, a anniversary propaganda film. Pudovkin, like, all the, like Eisenstein and all the other directors working in, in the Soviet Union at the time, was not uh, above or, or exempt from having to make propaganda films. It's not that interesting, but um, you know, it is the it is a trilogy, and it is uh, it's all of his career. And this is from Flickr Alley on Blu-ray. Definitely check it out. Let's good, good, good. where are we going? Let's let's wrap out with uh, let's wrap out with the the two criterions we've got here. Um, got two criterions this week. Uh, one that I would not have expected. The other I totally expected. The Prince of Tides is the one that I would not have expected. Um, not because it's not a good film. It's not a perfect film, but it's you know of the films that Barbara Streisand has directed, I would have expected them to go for Yentl first. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless. Uh, the Prince of Tides is a uh, is a is a solid film. My very good and dear friend Melinda Dillon is in it, and uh, I remember when they were making it. And uh, it's 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 got some really really good stuff in it. It's a little bit schmaltzy for my taste. It's a little bit overly melodramatic. But uh, Barbara Streisand is an underrated director. This is from 1991, and uh, her scenes with Nick Nolte are some really rock rock solid. They're really really good. Um, it's, it's essentially a relationship movie between, um, a a troubled man, uh, played by Nick Nolte, uh, and, uh, a therapist, a psychiatrist, uh, played by Barbara Streisand. And it all centers around uh, his sister's suicide attempt. And that's sort of what brings them together. But, uh, based on, you know, a, a very acclaimed novel and, uh, it's got gobs and gobs of extras on it and, uh, including an audio commentary from Barbara Streisand, which was recorded in 1991 and then recently updated, plus tons of featurettes and interviews and costume and makeup tests. And, uh, it's, 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 you know, um, your appreciation for the film will increase, uh, thereafter. Um, yeah. George Carlin in a rare dramatic sort of uh, turn. Yes, true. Uh, Very in, true. Yeah. In that film. And Showboat, the 1936 Yay! one, right? Directed by James Whale, the Frankenstein director who directed Showboat, of all things. And, of course, this Showboat is the Showboat uh, with Paul Robeson. That's right. Uh, and it, that's supposed to be one uh, a few years later. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, fantastic, uh, a fantastic version. Irene Dunn, of course. Uh, in the film, so yeah, the Hattie McDaniel, uh, you know, so some 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 faces and names in this film familiar yeah. uh, that would be very very familiar a little bit. This is of course before Gone with the Wind, uh, so Hattie McDaniel before she would win that Oscar a couple of years. That's later. right, that's right, from 1936, and uh, this includes a lot of very impressive stuff on it, including the Academy Award winning short documentary 
made by Saul Turrell, recently completely restored, Paul Robeson Tribute to an Artist. That was made in 1979. It's a great, great short. Uh, it really, really uh, lays out why Robeson matters and, you know, what transpired in his in his career thereafter. Um Tons of extras on here. Uh, you know, there's a there's a new interview with uh, James Curtis, who was James Whale's biography. Um, a new interview show with uh, Shauna Redmond, Professor Shauna Redmond, called "Recognizing Race in Showboat," which contextualizes all of the racial politics of the film in 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 hindsight in a in a way that you would never have imagined. Mm. So it, it gives it a completely new perspective. Um, and then there is a um, there are four performances from the sound prologue of the 1929 version of Showboat, which includes songs from the original Broadway cast members and uh, another 20 minutes of silent excerpts from that film and then uh, an audio commentary by uh, a film historian. So it's, uh, it's, it, this is, it's really, really great. It's really, really great. Showboat, Edna Ferber's mm. Showboat, directed by James Whale. Oscar Hammerstein and Jerome Kern did the music and lyrics, and uh, it, of course, has the amazing Paul Robeson uh, just nailing it as he's never nailed it before. All right, with that, we are going to now go into our interview with uh, Stephen Farber. Uh, Stephen Farber, uh, one of the, the most esteemed film critics in Los Angeles and uh, has done you know film series and written for everybody a former president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association and a very, very good friend and colleague of ours. We are proud to know him. And Stephen and Michael McClellan have written a new book called Cinema 62, The Greatest Year at the Movies. And Tim and I had a great chat with Stephen uh, this morning as to why and how they came up with their thesis that uh, 1962, not 1939, not 1999, not any of these other years that keep being bandied about, but why... 1962 is, in fact, that single greatest and most important year for the movies. Um, it was a good chat, wasn't it, Tim? Absolutely fantastic. So, so, so insightful. And, uh, and, and well, people will see why. All right. Without further ado, here we're wrapping out the show with our interview with Stephen Farber. Tim and I are elated to be talking to our, our good friend and Alaska colleague, Stephen Farber, about his new book, Cinema 62, The Greatest Year at the Movies, which he wrote with Michael McClellan, uh, with a wonderful foreword by Bill Condon. And it makes the case, we, we've all often heard the, uh, the argument that 1939 was the greatest year in movie history, and Stephen and Michael are... Uh, taking issue with that and making the argument with this incredible book that 1962 is the real greatest year at the movies. And what an amazing book it is. Stephen, thank you for talking to us today. Well, thank you very much for having me and for those complimentary words. <laughs> it's such a good book. I'm not even all the way through it, but I've, I've you know, I've been like cherry picking the chapters that I that look most interesting to me. Tim, you, you had a question you wanted to launch into. Well, it's so it's so funny, Stephen. Uh, Wade and I were chit-chatting before. We were wondering which one of us would play devil's advocate, and neither one of us want to because we both completely agree <laughs> with you. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, this is going to be boring interview. Yeah, we're just like, yeah, yeah, Stephen, you're right. Yep, you're right about that too. <laughs> so it's just a fascinating. Have you really run into anyone uh, pushing back hard? against your thesis here, because it's just an absolutely uh, uh, attractive and positive thesis. Well, I mean, obviously there are people who have uh, different favorite years, and uh, 
uh, Bill Condon mentioned that in his foreword that often this kind of your favorite year is sort of the year that you came of age, maybe in adolescence. And he mentioned like 1971 for a while was his favorite year. But in looking at it more objectively, he had to agree that it really wasn't up to uh, 1962. There have been many other years that have uh, been thrown out. Some people say 1974, the year of uh, Chinatown, uh, Godfather Part Two was uh, their favorite year and um some there was even a book written about 1999 a very recent year probably a yeah. younger person who uh, discovered movies at that particular time but i don't think so i mean there are people who say oh well yes 62 was great but i think such and such a year was as good or better but we haven't really had pushback in terms of people saying oh, this makes no sense at all, because I think when you just lay out the movies that came out that year and all the different things that were going on in society as well as in Hollywood, it's hard to argue with the basic thesis that this was an impressive year. The, I mean, what always, you know, I, I am a worshiper of Lawrence of Arabia, so 1962 is always an elite year for me just based on that alone. But it's it, it you, you raise so many interesting points. You you cast your net very widely, like you were just saying. It's not just about the movies. It's about what's going on in Hollywood in the society. And uh, you know, as we get into the '60s, all the original Hollywood moguls are basically retired or dead, except for Jack Warner. So it's and widescreen is just coming in, and television is just becoming a, a thing. And obviously the cultural change of the 60s and the election of John F. Kennedy. I mean, all this stuff plays a, plays a part. Talk just for a moment about the environment of, of 1962 and, and, and how your, your thesis factors that into the movies. Yes, I think that some people think that, oh, there was all this change was going on in the late 60s when there were student riots, anti-war protests, of course, that was the case. But in the early 60s, it was also a time of tremendous and important social change. Uh, Kennedy's election represented a whole new voice in American politics, a much younger kind of politician after the Eisenhower years, eight years of Eisenhower. So this was a brand new figure and the people that he brought in to his administration, often intellectuals, uh, not the kinds of career politicians that you had seen before. And it was, of course, the period of, of the, a lot of uh, a civil rights protests uh, that had started in the later 50s and was really going very strong in 62, all kinds of uh, sit-ins, demonstrations. Uh, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was really in the news constantly. There was lots of movements towards desegregation at uh, colleges, universities. 62 was actually the first year that a couple of movie theaters in the South, like uh, Nashville and Atlanta, were desegregated. Hard to believe in a way that it was so late as 62, but change was in the air in a lot of ways, and 
this young idealistic administration much more activity about civil rights, uh, a racial prejudice very much uh, being addressed at that time. So I think it was a time of change in society. There were uh, one interesting thing we found out. I mean, there were a lot of very important seminal books that were published in 62, uh, Silent Spring, which was a book that first mm. kind of launched the environmental movement, was published in 1962. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh, by uh, Ken Kesey, published in 1962, uh, ultimate anti-establishment book. It took a number of uh, more years for the movie version to be made, but a lot of these new ideas were in the air in the early 60s, and I think some people have overlooked that and uh, because they... Uh, focus on on the late sixties when things were maybe more visible visible and more uh, violent, but the early sixties was a part of uh, a time of great cultural social ferment um name some of the films that you think people really should focus on i mean the ones that jump out in in, in to me at least are, are obviously Lawrence of Arabia and uh the Manchurian candidate and Lolita and to kill a mockingbird of of course you know mm. such a, such a, i mean that was such a huge moment when gregory peck won yeah. the oscar for that um what else is there out there that people might not realize as part of 1962 well, I mean, first of all, let's say on uh, ju just the American scene, you've mentioned four of the very top movies there, but there was also uh, a, a Miracle Worker, which won Academy Awards for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress, uh, Days of Wine and Roses, a powerful study of alcoholism, Jack Lemmon, uh, Lee Remick, both Oscar-nominated for their performances. There were uh, John Ford's uh, kind of classic Western, uh, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Uh, another new voice, though, Sam Peckinpah, made his first sort of breakthrough, um, more iconoclastic Western, Ride the High Country, that year. So uh, those are some of uh, the American movies but one of the points of our book, Why 62 was such a, an important year, was that it really represented this explosion of international cinema. And so many of the great foreign filmmakers had major movies in 1962. Uh, Fellini, who was a part of Boccaccio 70, with also Visconti and Vittorio uh, De Sica, Ingmar Bergman, Through a Glass Darkly, um, Antonioni had two movies, La Note and Eclipse, uh, A Divorce Italian Style, which won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay of that year. Last year at Marienbad, Alain René, a much, much talked about, debated movie. Francois Truffaut, uh, perhaps uh, oh. the greatest of, of these people that year, had actually two movies come out in 62, Jules and Jim, of course, which may be his masterpiece, and uh, Shoot the Piano Player, which had come out a little earlier in France, but was uh, distributed in the U.S. in 62. So there was a lot of activity all over the world, and I think these international films 
had a great influence on Hollywood filmmakers as well over the next several years, having seen these movies, then the newer American directors wanted to match them in terms of sexual candor, in terms of technical, stylistic experimentation, which you saw in movies like uh, 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 Last Year at Marion Batter, Jules and Jim. Fascinating. Fascinating. Where do you think this idea came from, uh, uh, Stephen, in the first place, that, uh, that, that, that the 1962, the early 60s in general, was sort of a wasteland of American cinema? Uh, where did that come from? Well, I think the reason that some people might have thought that was that, and I think you just mentioned this, that the the great studio era was coming to a, a close. A lot of the people that we associate with the golden age of Hollywood in terms of the top studio executives, like Louis B. Mayer, Harry Cohn, they had died. So there were there was a really a changing of the guard then. But the sort of the glamorous uh, dream factories had lost some of their. Uh, a luster in the early 60s, a television was stealing away audiences. These big studios could no longer count on the guaranteed audiences that they had had in the 1940s up until the early 1950s. So it was a changing time and an opportunity for independent uh, filmmakers and financiers to come into the scene uh, Lolita, for example, uh, a Stanley Kubrick's movie, a brilliant uh, distillation of the uh, Nabokov novel, was financed independently because no studio wanted to touch it. It was ultimately distributed by MGM after the film had been made by a new independent company, Seven Arts, and uh, some uh, uh, English co-financing. It was actually filmed in England because of that. So it was definitely a new type of filmmaking going on. Uh, a David and Lisa, another movie from 1962. Frank Perry. A yeah. very low-budget film Frank Perry directed. Yes, Eleanor Perry, his wife at the time, did the screenplay. Both were Oscar-nominated, by the way. That year, that was a movie that was made for like $135,000, completely independently financed by private people just putting in a couple thousand dollars here. And yet it uh, managed to score a big, big box office success. It uh, really played in a lot of theaters around the country for many months got very good reviews in the press, some great reviews, and I say these two top Oscar nominations, Best uh, Director and Best Adapted Screenplay, it was adapted from a short uh, novel by a psychiatrist. So it was really a lot of new things going on at the time, and uh, it was a new mode of filmmaking. It was just starting to get going. I mean, the major studios were, of course, still operating, but they had new management often, and they were trying new things because uh, some of the old formulas had gotten tired. So it was definitely a time of change and innovation. I, I yeah, really as you like point out in the book, I'm sorry, Wade, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, go ahead, Tim. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
Yet, as you point out in the book, Stephen, some of the old school was still hanging on. John Ford, on both the list in 1939, you know, among among the the, the best directors in 1939, yet still doing some of his best work literally in 1962. Yes, and uh, Hawks, Howard Hawks, made uh, the movie Hatari. With, uh, an African adventure film with John Wayne, also who was in the uh, uh, Managed on Liberty Valance for Ford as well. So Wayne was still a, a top, a top, top star at that time. And Hatari was not Hawks's greatest movie, but a very successful movie at the box office and. Uh, really filmed on location in Africa, as many movies were being done at that time, filming overseas, not in Hollywood, which uh, caused some distress among the Hollywood labor unions. They weren't getting as much work as so many films had been uh, moved overseas. But yes, you had uh, George Cukor, who had been active in 1939, also was working in 62, not the greatest movie of his career, the uh, Chapman Report, but an interesting movie in, in attempting to deal with sexuality in a novel and frank way. He was a little bit stymied by the censorship code, so that's one reason that the movie didn't come off as well as initially he had hoped, but it had a... Had a very good cast with uh, Jane Fonda, Claire Bloom, Shelley Winters, and others. So, yes, it was a time when you had a mixture of these new talents, uh, uh, Sidney Lumet, John Frankenheimer, Kubrick, Sam Peckinpah, plus these veterans like Hawks and Ford who, who were working at the same time. So I think there was a, a very interesting cross-fertilization there among these talents from uh, different generations. And that's something that made 62 a very stimulating year, I would think, for audiences at the time and for those of us looking back at it now to think it's amazing that all of those people were working at the same time, plus this new breed of international filmmakers who were absolutely uh, mesmerizing audiences with a new kind of storytelling. You know, the part of the book that uh, really, really I found so interesting uh, is where you talk about the changing roles of women, both the young generation and the older generation. And there are two films that jumped right out, out at me, which I never really think of as being from 1962, but it's amazing when you do. One is Walk on the Wild Side, uh, which the Eddie Dimitri film, which is just so underrated. And the other one, obviously, um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which is such right. a freak show. And, you know, the way that it, re, it recasts two legendary actresses whose feud was already legendary uh, in, in equal measure with their own reputations. Talk about that subject and those two films in particular. Yes. Well, I mean, those two films in particular were interesting because it indicated that the problems that older actresses had in finding work at that time, Hollywood was very sexist and ageist uh, then. It may still be, perhaps not quite as much. But uh, A Walk on the Wild Side did have a couple of younger actresses in it. Jane Fonda, again, one of her early films, uh, Capucine, 
end. But it was really Barbara Stanwyck who was playing the madam of this house of prostitution where Capucine was one of the employees. Stanwyck, who had not been seen on the big screen for a few years before this, really had one of the best roles, certainly of the latter part of her uh, a career, and playing a latent uh, 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 lesbian character, this madam of the House of Prostitution, who is in love with Capucine, and it's indirect but pretty clear to people watching it. So that was an indication how the uh, production code was changing, and this movie was allowed to be made, recommended for adult audiences only. But Barbara Sandwick, one of the greatest actresses in Hollywood history, had to take this supporting part because there weren't starring roles for her at that time. And whatever happened to Baby Jane, you had two of the biggest stars in Hollywood uh, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, who had not worked uh, much in the last several years. They were not getting the kinds of parts that they had in the 30s and 40s and the early 50s because they were considered over the hill. That didn't inhibit people like John Wayne, uh, J Jimmy Stewart. They were still getting as many opportunities as ever, but the golden age female stars really were struggling for work. So Whatever Happened to Baby Jane was a very low-budget movie, under a $1 million budget, and it was not exactly as prestigious a project as some of the other movies that the two stars had done and won Academy Awards for, but they were desperate to work. And so they found this like horror novel about two sisters who were rivals and uh, one of them is crippled and the other one, played by Betty Davis, torments uh, Joan Crawford, who's unable to walk. She's in a wheelchair. So it was not a prestige project like, as I say, some of the other movies that they had done, which were based on great uh, novelists, Somerset Maugham, or playwrights, Lillian Hellman. Uh, this was considered sort of a freak show uh, with these two older actresses involved in kind of a battle of wits and turning into like a horror movie. But it was so successful that it launched a whole genre of uh, older actresses in horror films and you saw a lot of others who weren't able to get work like Olivia de Havilland and uh, Tallulah Bankhead and Shelley Winters who appeared in these kinds of some people called them hagsploitation movies or Grand Dame Guignol. In any case it was all started by Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and it showed that the studio moguls who didn't have confidence that these older actresses would draw an audience were proven wrong because Baby Jane turned out to be an enormous success and made on a, a low budget. It really uh, earned back its costs of under $1 million in like 10 days of, of release. 
in the fall of 1962. So it shows that there were kind of blind spots and misjudgments on the part of the studios, and it shows that there was definitely sexism and ageism in the industry that these actresses had to take very unconventional roles to keep uh, uh, their careers going. One of the things that you illustrate, I'm sorry, wait, uh, uh, one of the things that you illustrate in the book, Cinema 62, Stephen, so well, is how um, all of this was taking place across all of Hollywood. So in 62, we get the launch of Dr. No, uh, the the Bond series. In 62, we get Carnival of Soul, tiny little movie. And Orson Welles is in is in um, uh, 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 where was he when he made that movie The Trial um, um, outside the country. We get we get we get extraordinary cinema across the spectrum. If you could talk a little bit about how this was happening everywhere in Hollywood in 1962. Well, I think because of the fact that the audiences had shrunk with uh, 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 the rise of television and um, they didn't have the guaranteed grosses that they had had in the 40s when there were no alternative forms of entertainment, really. Therefore, being you know desperate can sometimes cause people to be more adventurous. And they figure, well, we have nothing to lose, so we might as well try some different kinds of movies, and they tried, yes, like a, like a Carnival of Souls, I mean, a very, very low-budget movie that uh, caught on maybe even more in subsequent years. But you also had John Huston com- made one of his dream projects, which was Freud, a biography of Sigmund Freud, the idea that, that a movie like that would be released by a major studio Uh, Universal Pictures is kind of mind-boggling, but it shows that they felt, "Ah, we don't have that much to lose. I mean, here's a major filmmaker, John Huston, wants to do this movie. It's not going to be a big-budget movie. Why not try it? And it turned out not to be a a box office success, but nonetheless, it was a pretty remarkable uh, enterprise for a filmmaker of Houston's caliber to do this. This was a dream project of his because he idolized Freud, and we may have different views today, but Freud was certainly a, a great thinker and influenced uh, in, influencer in many, many ways. And just the fact that this movie could be made and released by a studio was indicative of the fact that there were no rules that there had been in the past, and they were taking a lot of chances that uh, they wouldn't have taken back in the 40s when they were very confident of what audiences wanted to see. They no longer were confident about that, so a lot of experiments were undertaken, and we, the audience, were uh, the beneficiaries of that. Fascinating. It's just so fascinating. Well, Tim, unless you've got any other thoughts, I was going to wrap this up. You got any last questions? Oh, it was just wonderful uh, work, uh, Stephen. Uh, and I can promise you, I'll be using it in all my film classes uh, henceforth and forever. Thank you, sir. 
I, I agree. I, I think you guys did an amazing job. I mean, it, uh, it leaves no stone unturned, and it is a wonderful, wonderful... Um, it's not just a great thesis. It's just a, it's a great film history book, generally, and I, I learned a lot from it, and I, I, I thank you for doing it. You guys did a great job. Well, thank you for your support. I really appreciate uh, the fact that you got a lot out of it, and... Uh, that's very gratifying. So thank you for doing this and for uh, supporting the book. Of course. And uh, so for our listeners, one more time, the book is Cinema 62, The Greatest Year at the Movies by Stephen Farber and Michael McClellan. And uh, we would urge all of our listeners to make it a part of their film history libraries because it really is just so much fun. Thanks again, Stephen. Best of luck with the book. Thanks a lot. Great to talk to you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Okay. Bye.